Well, Mrs. Killebrew, my first year Texas history teacher. I remember very vividly, uh, I had just gotten my braces off. And for some reason, my orthodontist thought it would be a good idea to, uh, to chew a lot of gum. I don't know why. He just gave me a note that said uh, that I was entitled to chew gum in class. And so I remember I'm sitting in Mrs. Killebrew's uh, Texas history class, and I'm in the back of the room, and I am chomping down on a piece of gum like I'm chewing a piece of wood. I mean, I am just chomping down on it. And I remember her looking at me, and she said, what do you think you're doing? And I pulled out that note like I was the king of the world, and I said, I'm entitled to chew gum in class. And, she, and I'll never forget, she looked at me and she said, I don't care what you think you're entitled to. You get up and you throw that piece of gum in the bin. She put me in my place. Uh, and, and she was right to do that. We live in this entitlement culture today, don't we? And it leads us to this overinflated view uh, of ourselves. And we get upset when anyone might dare challenge uh, our view of personal autonomy and freedom. But sometimes we need to be brought down a peg. We need to be reminded that we are not sovereign. And COVID did this for a while, didn't it? Remember, uh, in the very beginning anyway, it, it doesn't seem like it today, but in the very beginning, uh, this microscopic virus brought us to our knees and reminded us how small we were. Well, this can spill over into the spiritual realm too, can't it? And we, we can easily move to a, an imbalance in which we, we stress God's nearness uh, and his eminence, because it, it, it makes us feel good, right? At the expense of his sovereignty and his transcendence. Now, I'm reminded of uh, Mr. Beaver's words in the Chronicles of Narnia, talking to, to Lucy about Aslan, the, the lion, the Christ figure. She asks, is he safe? And he says, oh, no, no, no. He's not safe, but he's good. And God is thankfully... Uh, our loving Heavenly Father. Uh, I mean, we, we say that all the time here. We affirm that. But He is also the sovereign, almighty God of the universe. And, and that's not up for debate as if God is going to have to stand for re-election one day when His term as God is up. See, quite often we are in danger of democratizing God. Like we can, we, we, we can protest away uh, the water charges uh, in this country, right? But God is God. And we don't get to construct him in our own image. We must take him as he reveals himself to be in his word. And sometimes we need to be humbled. And, and I'll be honest with you, this text is going to do that. So gear up, uh, get ready, uh, get in the, the scriptures with us, and let's think about these words. Remember the problem from last week in verses 1 to 13. It looks like God's promises to save Israel have failed because most individual Israelites are lost. They're not experiencing the salvation that God promised. 
And so Paul argued in those verses that God's promises to save Israel have not failed. Verse 6, key verse in all of chapters 9 to 11. His plan for salvation is unfolding, Paul said, according to his will and not how we might think. So God can narrow the number of elect in Israel who are experiencing salvation. And at the same time, he can expand the boundaries among Gentiles, all without violating his promises. Now, Paul's going to come back to this at the end of our chapter in verses 24 to 29. He's going to quote Hosea and Isaiah to show that the Gentiles are coming in because God is calling them in and the remnant in Israel is being saved because God is drawing them in. All to show how God is saving individuals based on his free choice and in keeping with his plan and promise. But here's the question that arises naturally from that. Is God just in doing that? Is God right in choosing some and in not choosing others and doing it unconditionally? That is apart from anything that they have done. And even if he is right in doing it, how can he then still blame those who can't resist his will? These are really tough questions, aren't they? But I want you to, to, to make a note here as we move through these verses that Paul isn't going to apologize for what he writes. Uh, he's not going to try to defend to the minutest detail what he's talking about. He's going to state these things as fact and as a core part of what makes God, God. If there is a God then he must be free to act as he wills in keeping with his character. Now, as we begin, let me just present, let me just lay out an axiom, something that, that is true that we must not forget as we look at these words. We, we, we must, uh, this must be the lens through which we view what Paul writes here. And here it is. No one deserves God's mercy. No one. We are all sinners. So when we talk about election, we can't think of God's choosing an election like kids choosing sides for a football match. As if people are screaming, pick me, pick me, and God is going, hmm, okay, I'll have you, I'll have you. Oh, no, 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 definitely not you, sorry. Oh, what is that you're wearing? No, no, forget, not you. Now, that's not reality. No one is seeking God. We saw it earlier in Romans. And why? Because we love sin. Thank you very much. We are not neutral in our natural position. All of us are sinners by birth and then by choice. And we're all freely moving toward hell. Mark Webb, the old Puritan, he said, election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there. But it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. And I think he's right. See, 
we ask the wrong question. We ask so often, why doesn't God save everyone? When what we should be asking is, why should God save anyone? So, with that axiom in mind, no one deserves God's mercy. Let's look at these questions in verses 14 to 18, and then in verses 19 to 24. The first question is asked innocently enough. And again, incidentally, through, this, uh, through these verses, I don't think Paul's suggesting that to struggle with these questions is wrong. I don't think Paul is, is arguing that. In verse 19, the second question, the problem is uh, a presumptive tone within the question. That's the problem in verse 19. So here's the question 14. Is God right to choose apart from what we do? Well, Paul is going to emphatically refute and reject in the strongest possible terms he can. He says, by no means. By no means. That's as strong as he can state it. Any accusation of wrongdoing uh, in what God is doing. Uh, He's going to argue that God is right because, number one, he's acting to glorify his character, and number two, he's acting in keeping with his character. So God defines what is right. And so he is acting rightly if he is acting in line with who he is. And so Paul is going to reach back to God's self-revelation in Exodus to make his point. So in verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He reaches back to Exodus 33, 19, where Moses tells us of God revealing his character to himself. He revealed himself there, God did, to be the one who bestows mercy on whom he wills. And so acting out of that character, God is free then to bestow mercy on some and to withhold it from others. It's not unjust because it's, it's in keeping with what he has said about himself. Now, Steve Lawson defines mercy as God's intervening action upon those afflicted by sin. And he says that it's driven by God's attitude of compassion or pity for sinners. And so this aspect of God's revealed, uh, of God's revealed character leads Paul to the point that God is not acting unjustly. Again, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. And that leads us to verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. Literally, it doesn't depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. The will... Uh, Your will and my will simply chooses what it most desires. The the will just follows after the affections. And we've already seen in Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, that no one desires God. Uh, Paul said in Romans 3, he, he said, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. And together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the reality 
that we're presented with in our natural state. We desire sin more than anything else. And that sin drives our will and it makes our will fallen. And it is our will that leads us to hell, not heaven. Spurgeon said it in a variety of ways, but he said, free will carried many a soul to hell, but never a soul to heaven. Again, the axiom, no one deserves mercy. That's what makes it mercy. And so see, we we think oftentimes that God ought to bestow mercy upon everyone. But mercy isn't, by definition, an ought. If you want fairness, fairness would be everyone goes to hell. That's what fairness would be. God bestows mercy on the one whom he wills. As Doug Moo notes in verse 16, uh, or verse 16 rules out faith and works as sources of election. Something precedes faith. Something precedes belief. Something precedes our working. And it is God's will and his choosing. And so at the moment of calling, as we thought about last week, the goodness of a sovereign will overcomes the resistance of our fallen will. And we believe. Case in point is Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Uh, One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Again, we've used the analogy before. All of us in our natural state are, as it were, standing uh, on a, a cliff edge the edge of a cliff, uh, a thousand feet down, uh, certain death if we were to fall, but there's an intense fog and we have no clue that we are standing so near our ultimate demise. And then God in his sovereignty blows that fog away and we see the danger we're in. He opens our heart to understand the gospel and we believe. Well, in verse 17, Paul's going to quote Exodus 9 to take us to the other side of God's freedom to act as he chooses. He says in verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God has providentially brought Pharaoh to this place in history. And notice Paul says, so that. I mean, note the purpose there. This isn't random. So that he might demonstrate his awesome power. Again, so that God's name and renown might sweep the nations. Might sweep across the world. Again, as the the prophet Habakkuk said uh, in chapter 2, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is what he did uh, in Exodus, right? Uh, all, uh, all the world heard about the glory and the power of God in judging and delivering. And, and we're still talking about it today, right? We still read about it in his 
word. Now we'll come back to this in a minute. But notice the summary then in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul says, so then, on the, on the basis of his revealed character, God is free to do this. He is free to bestow mercy on some, and he is free to harden others. Now, we've got to think about this word, harden, right? So, by harden here, he means that God is free to take sinners destined for judgment and seal them in their sin, such that they remain insensitive to his word and to himself in order to demonstrate his power. That's what he did in Pharaoh, right? Again, in Exodus, you see that the hardening of Pharaoh goes back and forth between God and and, and Pharaoh. But one thing is clear One thing we know, and that is this, Pharaoh was already a sinner. He already bore guilt and was destined for judgment because of his sin. So make a note here as we think about this word hardened. Paul does not say, nor does he believe, that God created sin and then put it into Pharaoh's heart. That's not what it means. Uh, Evil is never attributed to God. Remember the axiom at the beginning. Pharaoh was already a sinner. Tom Schreiner, one commentator, said, we should add that when God hardens Pharaoh, he hardens one who was already a sinner, one who came into the world corrupted as a son of Adam. Paul isn't teaching here that God hardens someone who was good. God simply sealed him in his sinful heart because God, in his absolute freedom, had different plans for Pharaoh. Uh, R.C. Sproul, it's not that God puts his hand on them to create fresh evil in their hearts. He merely removes his holy hand of restraint from them and lets them do their own will. Remember Romans 1. Three times it says that in his wrath, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to their own depravity. Uh, Bruce Demarest, he says it this way. He said, the Lord was not the blameworthy cause of Pharaoh's actions. God does not efficiently cause sinful rebellion. But he does give sinners sufficient rope to hang themselves. I think that's a good way of of thinking about it. Remember from last week, this is the picture then of how God relates to all of humanity. Doug Moo said, it is God who determines who is to be saved and who is to be kept in a state of spiritual blindness that is hardened. He does that. Moses and Pharaoh are illustrations of this. And so the point that God is free to do this because he is God then leads to another objection that Paul hears. And here, the tone shifts a bit. This question in verse 19, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will, is asked in a spirit of of presumptive arrogance. The word there uh, answers back in verse 19 means to dispute uh, or to resist. There's an opposition here Uh, in the question. So it isn't so much that the question itself is wrong. 
Uh, it is the way in which it's asked in a spirit of presumptive arrogance that Paul is addressing. Look at his response in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Let me paraphrase that. Who are you, you puny little man, to oppose God in this way? Now, there is here a desire in Paul to kind of put humanity in its place in order to make a broader point. Paul's not just dodging the question or being cheeky. He wants to make a broader point by putting humanity in its place. And that is to say that God will not be tried. One theologian, Clark Pennock, he said that God has a lot to answer for. <laughs> really? Answer to whom? God is not in the dock. God is not obliged to, to give an answer for how he chooses to act in his universe. And so Paul doesn't try to defend or argue how sovereignty and human responsibility fit together. Paul believes that God is absolutely free to do what he wants in his creation with his creatures. And so that's where he goes in verses 20 to 24. No one has a claim upon God. No one can pull out of their wallet an IOU that God has written them and make a claim. So Paul picks up on a metaphor that we see uh, in several of the Old Testament prophets, uh, particularly Isaiah, we see it in Jeremiah, uh, of a potter and clay in order to make the point that the potter has an absolute right to do with his clay what he wants. He can make some uh, vessels for honorable use, and then he has the right to make other vessels of uh, or for dishonorable use. And given the parallel that we see in verses 22 and 23, he's thinking here about the destinies of individuals. So here's what he says. Uh, verse 20, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Steve Lawson gave one of the best uh, expositions of, uh, of this metaphor that I've seen. And he argued that honorable here describes pottery that was used for display in a home. Uh, it was adorned. It's, it's painted. Uh, it's fancy, we might say. Uh, it's, it's, it's sealed and, and then it's displayed in order to bring glory to the one who made it and the one who displays it. Make a note uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we see that we as believers are trophies of God's grace on display for all the universe to see. So in Ephesians 1, three times, Paul writes that what happens to us in salvation is to the praise of his glorious grace. And in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, he makes the argument that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
So we as believers are like this pottery that has been adorned. It has been uh, painted. It is fancy. And then it is displayed in order to bring glory to the one who made it. It's like fine china. Like if you were to come over to our house for a, a special meal, well, Mandy might bring out our, our best china in order to, uh, to present uh, the meal to you. And then the potter, from the same dirty lump of, of clay that he used to make the fine piece of pottery, has just as much right to make another dish from the same lump, which is essentially just kind of left as it, as it is. It's not transformed. It's not adorned. It's just stuffed over into a corner, and it's used later in hauling out the rubbish. It's common. It, it, it is unattractive. It is left basically as it was in its natural state. Now, don't try to stretch the metaphor too far, right? Pots are not people. But, but look, Paul's point is that God, as the potter, has the absolute right to choose some to display the glory of his mercy and to leave others in a natural state of spiritual deadness. And this metaphor then gets applied in the parallel verses 22 and 23 to two types of people. We think, why might God do this? One person is passed over and hardened. Remember verse 18? This is what he said, uh, has mercy on whom he wills, he hardens whom he wills. Uh, like Pharaoh, passed over and hardened in order that God might accomplish the purpose of glorifying, Paul says in verse 22, his wrath to make his power known and his patience. So God's justice in the, the right outpouring of judgment upon sinners. Again, think back to Romans 1 verse 18. That God is even now revealing his wrath against sin. And he is right to do that. His power in doing that. Again, think back to verse 17 in Pharaoh. For this purpose I raised you up, that my power might be made known throughout the earth. This is what happened in the Exodus. It's gonna, read Revelation. It's going to happen again as the outpouring of his power and judgment is on display. And finally, his patience in not judging sin immediately, which he certainly had the right to do. Uh, he had the right to judge sin finally and completely at any point he chose. But he is choosing to be patient all of those aspects of his character, his wrath and power and patience are on display in verse 22 for all to see. We would know nothing of these aspects of God's character apart from this demonstration. Again, verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But Paul is going to stress something else 
and the grand purpose of God. Judgment isn't ultimate in one sense. Paul's going to argue that it is instrumental in highlighting something else about God. If there is glory in giving people what they justly deserve, all people, all of humanity, how much more glory is there in giving some what they don't deserve? Now, someone might say, wouldn't it be more glorifying for God just to show mercy to everyone? Well, no, it wouldn't. And frankly, if it would have been more glorifying for God to do that, he would have done that. He would have been compelled to do that, but he didn't. I don't know if you've ever uh, met someone who had a book and uh, they highlighted every single line in the book with a yellow highlighter. It's as if they didn't highlight anything, right? If everything is highlighted, nothing is highlighted. And so Paul argues in verse 23 that God is enduring these vessels of wrath in order to magnify the amazing nature of his mercy that is bestowed on some. Here's what he says. In order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now let's put 22 and 23 together real quick. Because there's an if statement that never gets finished. And so we have to infer what the conclusion is. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? What if God did that? The the conclusion that Paul's been on about in these verses is, then God is free to do it. If that's what God wants to do, nothing violates his character. He is free to do it in that way. He's free to do it in that way. Listen, what Paul is arguing here in verse 23 is that God's mercy pops against a backdrop of sin and justly deserved wrath. Apart from sin and apart from judgment, mercy isn't as amazing. First, it's not mercy if everyone gets it. It's fairness because we would deserve it. But the fact that all of us rightly deserve eternal judgment makes the fact that God would show mercy to even one person. Never mind billions and trillions maybe throughout history. It makes that mercy seem infinitely beautiful. Think about it this way. I heard this illustration. If you have a diamond, if you took a diamond out and you placed it against a a white A4 uh, piece of paper, eh, it looks pretty nice, doesn't it? But it it doesn't pop. But man, if you take a diamond and you place it on a black velvet pad and the light radiates off and reflects off and it contrasts against that black pad, how amazing does that diamond look? See, Paul argues in verse 22 and 23 that in this way, in judgment and in mercy, that all of God's attributes are known and glorified. And listen, this is what Paul wants us to hear. 
God is free to draw attention to all that he is in this way without compromising himself or his promises. Now, I think we have to be honest here that this text seems to teach that God's choosing of some for mercy necessarily means that he is choosing to pass over others. But I would suggest that because we are not neutral, we are sinners, all of us, God's choosing of some to receive mercy is slightly different than his choosing to leave others under wrath. To use a fancy word, it seems to me to be asymmetrical. That God's acts of predestination are not of the same kind. Now, I think you see that in Paul's use of the different voices here in verses 22 and 23. Look at verse 22 again. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It's middle or passive. It's either that these sinners have prepared themselves for destruction by choosing to follow in sin, or it could mean, if it's a passive, it could mean that God has prepared them. But look at verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. It's an active verb where God explicitly does the preparing. In other words, I think there is a subtle difference in the preparation of vessels for destruction and God's preparing of vessels for mercy. Again, Bruce Demarest, he said, the, the, the biblical evidence leads us to posit unconditional election to life and conditional election to damnation. So when we speak about damnation, we mean that God predestines persons not to sin and disobedience, but to the condemnation that issues from sin. And yet, Paul reminds us over and over again that people are judged for their own sin. And so, look, again, let's be honest. While we don't understand it all, we have to say that in the Scriptures... Human freedom and human responsibility are affirmed and they're real and they matter, but that ultimately they fall under the sovereignty of God. And so we're compatibilists and we have to live with that tension. Look, that's another sermon for another day, but, but let's tease out some implications for this just as we close. And let me just mention four under this one heading. We must allow God to shape our vision of who he is. We must allow him to tell us who he is. This is a hard text. And listen, you might disagree with what I've said, but, but the text remains. You gotta do something with it. Not liking a particular doctrine doesn't make it disappear. It doesn't make it disappear. Spurgeon said that, that election is written with an iron pen. And, and if, if we don't like it, 
it's there, and we've got to uh, explain it, and we've got to deal with it. I think this text leads us to four things, okay? Chiefly, number one, I think it leads us to humility. Listen, if you've heard what I've said today, and your response is arrogance, then you have missed the whole point. The response should be, why me? Why? As God has sovereignly allowed most of humanity to continue down the path of their own sin, willingly to judgment, why has God reached in and poured out his mercy on me? I don't know. It's not meant for me to know. All I know is that it is not because of me. It wasn't because I was better than anyone else. It wasn't that my spiritual spider senses tingled a little bit better than the next guys. God didn't look down the corridors of time and go, man, that guy there, I've got to have him. He's something special. There is no reason known to me why God would bestow undeserved mercy upon me. I can't explain it. Verse 24 Paul says, even us whom he has called. I can only express humble thanks for it. Number two, this gives us assurance. It gives us assurance because God is in charge and he is with us. And nothing thwarts his plan. And I could do a whole other sermon on verses 25 to 29. I just don't have time. But when he quotes Hosea, look at the certainty in these verses. I will call my people. I will call beloved. They will be called sons of God. There's no uncertainty in that. God is in charge. And he is with us. He is sovereign over all things. Ephesians 1.11 says... In him we've attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works not some things, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I can be assured of that. The third thing is evangelism. Now look, it might sound counterintuitive from Romans 9, to talk about an implication being evangelism. But the fact that God is drawing in his people should not put us off evangelism. It should give us confidence in it. That our job isn't to change hearts or to convince people who are obstinate. Our job is simply to share the message of the gospel and let God work out the ends that he has in mind. Why do we share the gospel if God has chosen who's going to respond to it? Well, two reasons. Number one, because he commands it. Number two, because while we believe that God ordains who will believe, we also believe that he ordains the means by which they will believe. In other words, God in his grace has chosen to draw in his elect people through his people as they share the gospel. So the Spirit works through our proclamation to the elect. Listen to the way uh, Pastor Sam Storms 
describes it. If God has graciously decreed that a certain soul shall in due course believe in Jesus, we may be assured that he has also decreed that the gospel shall be presented to that person. One must not assume that the ordained end, the salvation of the soul, will occur apart from the prescribed means, the preaching of the good news. We must also remember that our responsibility to preach fervently, urgently, and universally is dependent neither upon our speculations as to who may be elect, nor upon our ability to comprehend the relationship between preaching and predestination. God's command, not our curiosity, is the measure of duty. And we see that in the scriptures. We see it in Acts chapter 13. When the Gentiles heard their preaching, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We saw it in Acts 16. We've already talked about Lydia. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you, listen, through our gospel. Through the preaching of our gospel, God called you to himself. And so then in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2, he can call this church to pray for him as he goes to share the gospel. Because Sharing of the gospel is the way in which God draws in his people. And, and frankly, look, we don't know who the elect are. Uh, Charles Spurgeon kind of joked that if the elect were, were marked with a yellow stripe on their back, that he'd go around London lifting up people's shirts to see who he should share the gospel with. But that's not what God did. So he said, I'm just going to share it with everybody. And then let God do what God wants to do. And so look, we keep sharing, keep praying we share with everyone and we don't give up because while we don't know what God might be doing, we know that he is doing something. And finally, this text leads us to worship. How awesome is a God who can do all of this? A God who can take people under wrath because of sin, overcome their resistant wills, transform them as objects who reflect glory. And ultimately, if you read in Revelation 21, reflect it perfectly. The full range of God's attributes are on display in Romans 9. But it's mercy that comes to the fore that gets highlighted. Why? Because justice and judgment and wrath are deserved, but mercy, mercy is undeserved. What a God. And so Paul concludes Romans 11 with this doxology of praise. In verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him 
and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled as we think about these difficult words. We recognize that we reach a point in our finite understanding where we can go no further. We recognize, Father, that you are infinite. And so, Father, we bow to your sovereignty. We pray, Father, that, uh, that you would work in us. We thank you, Father, for the work that you have done in us, and we thank you for your promise to bring it to completion. And, Father, I pray that we would be a humble people, that we would be a people who stand confident that you work all things according to the purpose of your will, that we would be a people who are zealous to share the gospel with everyone, knowing that that is the means by which you are drawing in your elect. And Father, that we might worship you that we might consider how unfathomable you are as a cause for worship. And Father, I pray that if there are any today who have not trusted in Jesus, who are standing right now under your just condemnation and wrath, that they would come to the place where they would trust and believe that Jesus died to take that penalty for them, that they can be adopted into your family as sons or daughters through faith in Jesus. So God, would you do your drawing work, your calling work, even now in our midst? We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.